And we did have a great conference. And usually the weekend after the conference, I give a, a conference report. And I'm all excited about giving it. But uh, you will just have to wait. I may do that this coming Thursday night. And I would like to thank all of you for praying for my mom. My mom is doing well. She went through the surgery. She has not received all of the results for tests. But uh, you know, she's uh, believing God. Uh, she's just doing fine. And uh, I thank you for all of your prayers. Praise God. Matthew 13, verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and he buyeth that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And I want to speak this morning on the subject, intangible riches. By intangible, I'm talking about riches that you can't, you can't take a tape measure and start on one end and measure to the other and tell how big they are. Uh, you can't put them on a scale determine how much they weigh. There's no way you can do that. You can't pour them in some kind of a container, measure the volume, but nevertheless they are real, just as real as life is real. And God bless you. You may be seated. <clears throat> it is amazing when we think of riches, what normally comes to our mind. We see people driving big $100,000 cars, living in $3 million homes. I was privileged a couple of years ago to visit the site where one of our Pentecostal uh, brothers and sisters, a couple, were building a home. This is in the Milwaukee area, and the house was, was going to cost them $3.2 million. And uh, they didn't have the house finished. They had a stable with some thoroughbreds and some uh, English warm blood horses. And the stable was uh, much nicer than the house I was living in. And to see these people praising the Lord and thanking God for all that he had done and giving their heart to the Lord and very sincere in it, you know, you have to appreciate that uh, people can can be blessed of God to this degree, and yet at the same time, uh, they can continue to live for the Lord. The Bible, however, does indeed give us a word of caution concerning riches. Uh, we see words in the Bible like deceitfulness of riches. We also see scriptures like 1 Timothy 6, 17 that teaches us not to trust in uncertain riches. And the word uncertain is used because they're here today and perhaps gone tomorrow. But as I open the back of my Bible and, uh, and I begin to look in the concordance under the word rich, I see so many scriptures. Uh, Isaiah 45, 3, the Bible says, I will give thee hidden riches. In other words, some God will bless you with riches that you can't really see with your eyes. That uh, you just cannot measure them, as I had made mention of earlier. Uh, the Bible also gives us a, a warning about our hearts being lifted up because of riches. Now that's talking about earthly riches, things that we see with our eyes. It is a known fact that revival movements more specifically those that have come into certain denominations or certain ranks of Christianity, that uh, they have come in as a result of people pouring their heart out to the Lord, and they are depending on those things that they cannot see with their eyes. 
And then later on, they seem to have a tendency to replace what they can't see with their eyes with that which is tangible, that which they can see and feel and touch. And as a result, then, they lose sight of the riches of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible is just full of, uh, of uh, warnings concerning even the blessings of God, that, that the aftermath of such blessings can bring havoc uh, to some people because we have a tendency, when things are going well, we have a tendency to forget about the God that made life easy for us. One thing that God did when he led Israel out of Egypt and established the great country or the, the, the Jewish people, uh, he warned them not to take his blessings for granted because he was going to pour out blessings upon them which they could not contain. But if there is ever a time, he said, in which you do not uh, give me glory and honor for doing this, uh, the riches alone will spoil you. They will cause an attitude to come to you that... Uh, is is uh, is detrimental to uh, to your happiness. Now, the true feeling concerning the uncertain riches, uh, the uh, the Bible t talks about uh, in in First Timothy about people being pierced through with many sorrows. There's there's something about gaining in this life that causes greed, and greed causes Unrest, and as a result, uh, uh, people who are busy gathering, uh, they seemingly cannot gather enough. But the more they gather, the more they want. And it, they create a syndrome, and they seemingly can't get out of this. That's all they think about. They, they live for that, and they continue to, to do this. They will hold on to these riches until... Uh, they pass away even though uh, the, the riches uh, alone are causing them unhappiness. Have you ever thought about what it, would what it would take to make you totally complete and totally happy? Now, I'm sure that we have a lot of people here that could stand up and give the right answer to that because we have so many Holy Ghost-filled people. Uh, usually when you ask people... What uh, what would it take to make you happy? They usually will make some reference to earthly gain. Uh, <clears throat> I have read many, many reports of people who have won the lottery. And what are you going to do with all this money? And uh, they're just, you know, just ecstatic. They just, they're besides themselves. They just... You know, and they start talking about, well, first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to pay off all my bills. Well, that's a good idea. Next thing I'm going to do, I'm going to build a nice home. Well, everybody that can afford it, uh, you know, should have a nice home. That is, if you can afford it. And they go right down the line. But I don't recall any situation but one that happened in the city of Chicago where they, they mentioned doing anything for God. And you may say, well, people who would be playing the lottery all the time usually wouldn't have their mind on doing anything for God. I will say this. I, I remember reading in the paper about four years ago there was a minister in Chicago, and he had been preaching against the lottery. Uh, his wife went out and bought a ticket, unbeknownst to him, and uh, she won... Uh, I don't know, $10, 15000000 million. So the question then was asked, <coughs> uh, what are, what are you going to do? They were in a building program, and are you going to let your wife uh, give the money to, uh, you know, to finish the building? Well, he stumbled around, and uh, he didn't know how to answer it, and then they asked him, said, well, are you going to keep it and live on it? I guess he decided that if he kept it and lived on it, that might be even more selfish or more sinful, maybe I should say. The principle wouldn't be as good as if uh, 
she gave it to the house of the Lord. And this, this is what he said after uh, debating in his own mind for a while. He said, well, I tell you what, I think she needs to pray, and I think she needs to repent. And after she's done that, we'll consider that money to be sanctified, and we'll build our new building with it. <laughs> and then he made a statement that uh, I remember reading in the paper that Oral Roberts had made when someone from a racetrack or a dog track or something that gave t uh, several million dollars to his foundation. He said, well, the devil has had the money long enough. It's time that God get it and God use it. <clears throat> That's the only situation that I remember reading about where anyone had anything to mention concerning the kingdom of the Lord. Now, if I'm understanding the parables, the two parables correctly, the Bible says the kingdom of heaven uh, is a priceless treasure. That's, that's basically what, what uh, the point of the matter is. The kingdom of heaven is, is a priceless treasure. And uh, it is to be desired above everything else in this world. This is the reason why, that, that when the man found the hidden treasure in the field, now he hid it. He wanted to make sure that, it, that he got it. And he went... And he sold all that he had just to buy the field so he could lay claim on that treasure. Uh, and then the scripture talks to us again about the kingdom of heaven of being likened to a merchant man seeking goodly pearls. When he found one, great, a pearl of great price, he did the same thing. He went and sold all that he had and collected enough money to go and buy the one pearl. So the scripture is just simply telling us that, that we have to be willing in this life, if we want true riches in heaven, to be able to give up everything we have in this life to acquire the kingdom of God. And we acquire the kingdom of God when we become willing to, to sever our relationship with the world and everything that's in it. Now, I, for a long time, I really didn't understand that when I was a child. Because, you know, as a child, you, Christmas time comes, you always want gifts. Uh, you don't care much about family matters, just gifts. Uh, our parents would have a big meal and we'd eat. I didn't care anything about the meal. Just let me open the gifts. And uh, I remember one time, my uh, just a little tiny thing, my dad got me one of those little red wagons, you know, with those oak board slats around the side and when I walked in and saw that it was wrapped in brown paper I, I knew what it was because the, you could see part of the tongue protruding out of the paper and I'm telling you I just pitched a fit I was ready to open that I wanted that I mean I wanted that more than anything else in this world then I'd go with my mom and and my grandmother grandfather to church and and I would see them praying with people at the altar receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Now, maybe some of you don't know what I'm talking about, but at the end of this message, you will be given the opportunity to come down to the front, and there will be Christian workers who will come and pray with you, and you can receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And I remember preachers talking about repentance, and they explain repentance like this. It's the time in which you sever uh, your relationship with everything else in this world, with everything in this world. It's the turning around. It's the turning away from. And then uh, I have heard some of the old saints give instructions to some of the uh, people praying for the Holy Ghost, and they would put it like this. You must want the Holy Ghost more than anything in this world. Now, you know, I, I thought about that as a child, and that, that was... That was quite a challenge, but because things really meant a lot to me. They really meant a lot to me. And, and I could see some of those things that I owned, even though uh, I didn't own much compared to kids today. You know, kids today, boy, they have rooms full of toys. You know, <clears throat> and uh, uh, wasn't that way in my day. Most of the toys I had, my dad made or or I made and... You know, we'd, uh, we would make a lot of little things out of boards. And, you know, it was very, very simple when it came to playtime. But, boy, today it's computers and, you know, all kinds of plastic toys and gadgets. And 
robots and you name it, you know. That's what the kids have. Uh, just everything. But in, in my own simple way of thinking, those little things that I cherish so dearly, I thought, you mean I have got to give those things up? And those old saints would pray and seek the Lord. I call them old because they seem to be old then. Actually, a lot of them were younger than I am now. But nevertheless, <clears throat> that's what they'd say. You And they stressed this. This is one thing that the, the old-timers did. And if someone was praying for the Holy Ghost they, they and they couldn't receive the Holy Ghost or didn't receive it quickly and easily, they'd stop them. They'd talk with them. And they'd say, have you given up everything? You, you remember those. This, this is the way that, they, and I, I think it's so profitable. Because they, they cause you to go on a soul-searching mission where you really search, I mean, deep inside of your heart. You've got to want the Holy Ghost more than you want your next breath. That's what they say. Now, <clears throat> I remember when I was praying for the Holy Ghost, and I didn't seek for the Holy Ghost for a long period of time, but I didn't receive it as quickly as some of you have. I remember things that they told me, such as, uh, you've got to be willing to do anything to receive the Holy Ghost. Now, I think what they meant was that you must be willing to do anything for the Lord. Because when they said do anything, you know, I could see myself just hanging from the chandeliers or, you know, some bizarre things. They didn't really explain it to, in the way in which I, I think maybe they, they should have explained it. But, but I remember, uh, I remember vividly Someone tell them, you've got to be willing to do anything. And I could just see myself going down to the mayor's office, knocking on his door, going in and preaching him a message that would just, you know, burn the hair on his face and, and send him into hell almost. And, you know, you, know, you, you get all those, you know, you, you say, man, you know, anything. I mean, I must be willing to do anything. Well, I think they meant anything for the Lord. And, and, and certainly discretion comes into play then. Because truthfully... Uh, when someone says worship is doing anything that you uh, would not uh, do or anything that would embarrass you, and I've heard uh, even preachers explain it like that, uh, I disagree with that. And the reason why, because I think if whatever you're doing, if it's not bringing honor to the cause, <laughs> then it's detrimental to the cause. You follow what I'm saying? So uh, stop all that business about hanging from the chandeliers because... Well, first place, we don't have chandeliers in here. Uh, now, you'd have to go out in the vestibule to hang from one, and we prefer when you worship to stay in here. But, but I, but I, I remember when I was when I first the first church that I pastored, I there was a young boy he could not receive the Holy Ghost. We prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. His name was Gary uh, Denny, and I remember one time uh, I wanted Gary. It just looked like he just wanted to burst out. And just worship the Lord. But he was just, he'd hold back. And you couldn't get him to lift his hands. And finally we'd hold up his hands. And we'd come on, Gary, and we'd pray. Finally, I stopped everybody and said, Gary, I want you to just do what you feel like doing. In Jesus' name, do it. And you know what he did? I mean to tell you, he went bloom, fell on the floor like that. And we just stood and looked at each other. He rolled over, looked up at me and says, Thank God, y'all are about to kill me. He said... I was just telling myself, if I could just lay down here. <laughs> but you know, separate and apart from all of the, the humorous things that I've been involved in, the, the bottom line is that, that uh, in order to receive this priceless treasure which I feel that every man on the planet Earth is really seeking for, uh, he must desire it above everything in this world. Regardless of how much you love life and the commodities of life, somewhere you must acquire a deep and sincere appreciation for God. Selling all means that one must transfer his whole heart from one point of interest to the supreme interest, and that is Jesus Christ. And you see, the problem that people have in our day is the fact that, that so many people have been down on Christianity, that uh, church and Jesus is 
is, is kind of a, uh, you know, a bad word. You know, even in reading religious materials, I found out that quite often, recently I found this, that, that the name Jesus is not used as much as, as uh, God or Christ. Now, I, I believe that Jesus was God. I believe that Jesus is the Christ. But uh, it, it, it's almost like that there, people are trying to avoid using this word. Uh, so they will. I, I, I've just read some prayers, even in some books, and they they would, in the in the name of Christ, this is how they would end their prayers. Well, you may say, uh, are you saying that we should not end prayers in the name of Christ? Well, I say just just. Just name the name of Christ, Jesus. <clears throat> There's nothing wrong with just naming his name and saying it. You know. And <clears throat> I talked with a few people uh, and we were talking about God and and they uh, th this happened recently and I've had this to happen uh, throughout my ministry, throughout the years. I, I would not be able to name the number of people that have mentioned God in, in this fashion. Well, I would not only say God, but also the Bible. Uh, if you talk to people about the Bible and they, they're not involved in God, it's almost like there's an avoidance to even using the name Bible or the word Bible. Uh, someone was telling me something. They were trying to quote a scripture, but it wasn't a scripture. It was something that they thought was a scripture. And they had botched it up so that I didn't understand where they, I said, where did you get that? They said, it came out of the book. And I said, what book are you talking about? They said, well, you know, the good book. And I said, oh, you mean the Bible? Yeah, that, I meant, yeah, the good book. I said, well, there's nothing wrong with saying Bible, you know. <clears throat> In the same conversation, when we talked about God, they talked about the man upstairs. As if maybe it's, it's a, you know... You know, it's too far-fetched. It Wow. You're going to remove yourself that far from the Bible and God by referring to His Word as the good book and Himself as the man upstairs? But selling all means that one must transfer his whole heart from the one interest that he's involved in to the supreme interest, and that is Jesus Christ. And I understand Brother Rutherford preached a remarkable message last Thursday night from Romans 12, but I just want to read this. This is basically what takes place. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now, Paul is saying it is only reasonable that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's only reasonable. Why is that only reasonable? Because Jesus went all the way to the cross and bore in his body stripes. And he was nailed to the cross and pierced in the side in which his blood flowed to take your sins away. If God deserves to be anything in your life, He deserves to be number one. I say He deserves to be number one. If He deserves to be anything, He deserves to be number one. You know, we talk about earthly riches. Uh, I don't know how many movies I have seen in my life, but I've seen my share of movies, I'll assure you of this. Um... Uh, when I was a young man, I think I saw every western that was ever made. You know, just you know, I just I didn't think a movie was a movie unless it was a western. So when I was in high school, some of the some of the kids would be going to the theater, you know, and they'd be going and seeing Gone with the Wind and some of those you know terrible old ones. That's what I thought then, you know. <clears throat> to me, you know, if it wasn't a western, you know, if it didn't have John Wayne in it or you know, I didn't really think it was a Western, you know, or a movie, rather. But uh, <clears throat> I, I, I've seen my share of, 
of movies that have uh, dealt with people in search of riches. Pirates and ships would sink, and people going to the bottom of the ocean. I saw John Wayne a movie went to the bottom of the ocean looking for treasure on a ship. Uh, some island, someplace remote island, and and this island is supposed to have treasures buried. You know, people are still doing the, those things. They're making excursions and going down into the bottom of the ocean. I worked with a man in Longview, Texas, that he, he would work in in the, the wintertime and go to Alaska. Now, I don't know what kind of a uh, arrangement he had with the company because normally they wouldn't tolerate this. But, you know, he'd come back and work at the, in the factory there in the wintertime, and he would go to Alaska and search for gold and precious metals in the summertime. He'd be gone all, all the summer long. And he had the pictures of glory. I meant... Uh, you talk about big equipment. I mean, we're talking about going up to the side of a mountain and blasting and digging, and of course you have to get government approval of all this. And, and I asked him, "Have you ever found any gold?" He said, "Not one ounce of gold have I ever." But he said, "I believe there's gold in those hills." I believe it. <coughs> I said, "Why do you believe it?" He said, "But look at all the gold that's going. You know." Look at all the rings you see in the gold. He said, it came out of the ground someplace. Diamonds. Such. I was privileged to preach uh, in Arizona about four years ago now. And on after the, the, the camp was over, Brother Sister Hudson wanted to take us into Mexico, which we, we went into Mexico, but uh, south of, uh, of uh, Tucson going to the the Mexican border, I saw all these big fields and they were all ripped apart and they were doing strip mining. And I said, what are they doing? He said, well, they're digging for copper. And uh, so we got some literature on it. I, I couldn't believe the, just, I mean, miles and miles and miles of stripping the soil and digging for copper. But when I picked up the literature, they said, well, it is true that we're digging for copper. Uh, our eye is set on finding gold. And what we do, we all the soil that's dug, that you see, look at the soil, that, that you, you see dug and, and stacked and piled, every bit of this is filtered through a, a particular machine or machines, not all through one, but m machines, and it detects if there's any gold in that. And if there's any gold in it, we stop the machine and we actually take this and pan that gold out, just like the old timers panned it out. And would you believe, they said that the byproduct of all this strip mining, the small amount of gold that we found, even though copper is a rare commodity uh, today, that the gold and the price of the gold far exceeds the price of the copper that we've taken out. And uh, <clears throat> they filter every bit of that. I mean, they... I mean, with a fine-tooth comb, so to speak, they go through that. Uh, I don't know if you read, a, a, most of you have, because you, you, you read it in, a, in American history, but the gold rush of, of 40, the 49, 1849, the gold rush. Uh, people, people sold everything they had. I mean, literally everything they had. And loaded in a covered wagon to make a 3,000-mile trip I'm talking about a trip that would take them a good portion of a year. Uh, wealthy families, ladies that had been uh, not uh, reared on the farm, but in the cities, Philadelphia, some of the cities, and walked on streets that were paved, were willing to sell everything they had and get in a covered wagon and make a 3,000-mile trip. Many of them died all along the way. Uh, my wife and I went through North Platte, Nebraska, and we stopped there. And we were on our way back home, and we had to rush back because of an emergency. But we picked up a piece of literature, and uh, going down the road, I was reading it, and they were talking about the wagon train that came through there and the wagons. And they said most of this <coughs> were people going... Uh, to California during the gold rush. 
But they said after over a hundred years of wear and tear and erosion of the wind and the rain and, and such on the soil, that the wagon ruts in certain parts of North Platte, Nebraska are still three feet deep. Can you believe that? And <clears throat> some wouldn't sell all. They'd take everything they could, and along the way, they'd just pile it out, throw it out, pile it out, throw it out. They'd get out there, and of course, they would, most of them were disillusioned. They'd get out there, and <laughs> guess what they found? I mean, nothing. Absolutely nothing. But they were willing to risk it because they thought that they would increase, even though some were wealthy, they would increase uh, their wealth. And I think that, that, that this is what the, the Scripture is doing. It's painting a beautiful picture of how people uh, proceed in the direction of, of tangible riches. Uh, I guess from day one with man, his heart's been full of greed, and that's what he's, what he's gone after. He's looking for a hill someplace that has the wealth. Now it's, let me win the lottery or something of this this nature and the truth of the matter is that uh, clear observance to the word of God and living by the word of God and the building up of character which is an intangible thing your integrity which is so important uh, will bring you happiness as you align your life with God now I don't know if I'm speaking to anyone here uh, or not but I want you to hear what I'm saying because I think all of us are acquainted with this. I have known of children that get in this habit of exaggerating. And, uh, you know, sometimes we say, well, they just have a good imagination. But later on, as they got a little older, parents became concerned because they realized that the exaggeration was nothing but just fabrication. They'd lie about things. Uh, they'd tell stories about where they'd been and things they had done. They, they, they never corrected this and later on in life. Uh, uh, they, they continue to be untruthful. And, and I have talked with people that have had problems in this area. And it's, it, lying is almost like an addiction. It's like being addicted to alcohol or cigarettes or something. They just they tell a lie when the truth sounds better. You know. But the, I've had people tell me, said, you don't know how miserable this is. It's just as miserable as being addicted to some, some drug. I just every time I say something that's not right, I know it's not. It bothers me. I need to get over this. So whenever I talk about building your life around Jesus Christ and finding the true riches, the intangible riches that will that will build character in you and integrity. That uh, uh, this is what we're talking about when we're talking about having a life that's 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 full of joy. Now, the book of Proverbs is, is a very intriguing book. I have people come to me all the time with problems, and I, there are certain problems I tell people. What you need to do, you need to take the book of Proverbs, the whole book, and you need to read it every day. Just read through it every day. Because the Bible, especially the book of Proverbs, have, has emphasized that God has established, established absolutes. In other words, he has divided right from wrong. Now, in our present society, we are told that there are no absolutes, that everything is relative. And, and uh, <clears throat> so as a result, uh, uh, you never know if you're right or wrong. That there's nothing clearly defined. Uh, little wonder, then, that, 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 that young people are so, so disoriented. You know, you wonder what would cause a, a school teacher and some, some students to, to plot to kill the school teacher's husband. What would do that? Well, have we ever stopped to think that the educational system itself might be responsible for that? Because we're the very product that we're trying to, uh, uh, to uh, create it, is, is the thing that, that once it's created, we, we would curse it. But you take people that they don't know right from wrong, and, and, the, and there are no absolutes. But you see, the Bible, especially the book of Proverbs, 
has emphasized that God has established an absolute. And there is a difference between right and wrong. Now, to disregard this, the Bible says, that it will bring, bring tragic, tragic results to one's life. It will do that. Now, our day of uh, no absolutes and everything is relevant and, and such, and, you know, you ask some of the kids, what's your favorite color? They, they don't even know. It's, my favorite color is plaid. You know, it's a combination of everything, you know. <clears throat> but Galatians 6, verse 7 through 9, the Bible says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. He that soweth to the flesh, shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit, shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Now, <clears throat> You may not be aware of this, but if you haven't been born again, you spend a lot of your time fearing the hour that will come upon you that will cause death to you. I did that, and I have done that even since I've been born again. I spent time thinking about it. But there's something about it that seems that the more I pray, the more I seek God, the closer I get to God, the less fear I have of tomorrow. And so as a result, I can be content for today. So I'm not always struggling with what am I going to wear tomorrow, what am I going to eat, and, you know, how am I going to pay the rent, and what am I going to do about this and that and the other. But you feel confident in the God that you serve, that God's going to take care of you. Now, going back to this sowing and reaping, if you, if you go and plant corn, and, and Brother Bill Thorpe, uh, he spends a lot of time planting corn, or at least he works for Rink Farms that spends a lot of time planting corn. And I think if Brother Thorpe had a few moments, and it wouldn't take him long to tell you, that they have never planted a field of corn what they didn't reap corn. You know, the farmer doesn't go out and look and say, oh, we planted corn here. Soybeans is what we got. No, it's, that's not the way it works. What you put in the ground is what comes out of the ground. Now the harvest will come to your life if you're sowing to the flesh and sowing to the things that appease you. Harvest time will come. Now it may not come today or tomorrow, but it will come in due time. And of course, the end result, uh, if, you, if you look in Proverbs uh, 1, The end result is that uh, that it will lead to destruction and and anguish. Uh, I'd like you to just turn to Proverbs one. I don't know if I asked you to do this or not. I started making reference. Uh, verse twenty four. The Bible says, "Because I have called you, and you refuse, I have stretched out my hand, and no man regarded." But you have said it not all my counsel and would none of my reproof. In other words, when God scolded them, they disregarded it. That's what the Bible saying. When, when God stretched out His hand, they refused. They just simply refused. Basically, in their heart, they were trying to ignore God. I'm going to ignore God. That's what I'm going to do. All right? Now, God says in verse 26, I will, I also will laugh at your calamity. Now the word also is used here, and I think you'd have to go back to other translations to find out. It appears that what God is saying, because you laughed at me, I will also laugh at you. And could I just interject one little thought? When God laughs, it usually is not funny. Okay? I will mock when your fear cometh. In other words, life is not a game. It's for real. And God can't be played with. It just does not work that way. God cannot be played with. 
it, it just, uh, it, it's just so, so amazing to me that, that people would, 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 would have this kind of view of God. I guess just from a child, I don't know, maybe my upbringing or something, I've always feared God. I, I always have. And I, I just, I'm, I'm thankful for that. I, I tell the Lord quite often, Lord, I don't know why, but I really thank you that you put a real fear in my heart for you. I, I think that's so important, extremely important. <clears throat> praise God. Let's just lift our hands and praise the Lord, would you? <clears throat> oh, God. God, I love you. Now the Bible speaks of these people that that treated God this way in the time in which they called on him, then he he did not answer them, verse 28. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. Well, I know the Bible tells us that if we confess our faults that he will forgive us and but I, I think there's something else that we need to consider in this. That, that, you know, people come and ask me questions about God, and quite often I, I, I can't answer those. One man asked me, he said, now, I didn't pay my tithe. Do you think God will just forgive me? And, and I'll just start afresh. I said, well, that's a, something you have to take up with God. You know, because I didn't put the rule in the book, and I, have, I don't have the ability to forgive you of this. And I can't answer for God. We had a person who came to the church, and they wanted to go to Vegas. They already planned the trip, and they said, well, I want to receive the Holy Ghost, and which they did. But then, then they said, do you think it's all right if I go ahead and go to Vegas? you think God will forgive me? And I said, well, you'll have to take that up with God. Well, I really wanted to go, but the Holy Ghost kind of came at the wrong time. <laughs> time which the gentleman received the Holy Ghost, I'm sure he, he wasn't thinking this way. Sometimes you can change your thinking, you know, later on. And, and obviously this is what had happened. But he wanted me to put uh, my approval on him going to Vegas in light of the mercies of God that he had read about in the Scripture. But, you know, when, when you try to play with God like that, you'll find that God is extremely long-suffering unless your intent is to take advantage of it. And when you, when you start to take advantage of the long-suffering of God, you find out that hmm, he's not as long-suffering as what you thought. In other words, he just doesn't play the game of life the way that you expect him to. There's a, there's a verse of Scripture I want to call your attention to, and that's in Hebrews 12. Uh, verse 14, and we'll go down through verse 17. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up, trouble you, and thereby by many be defiled. Verse 16, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For you know how that afterwards, when he would have inherited the blessed, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Now, the Bible speaks of bitterness. And then the Bible speaks of repentance, and it talks about tears. And it talks about a person who pursued repentance carefully. In other words, I like to think of this like, uh, let's say, the, the man who went to Alaska every summer. I mean, he was, I mean, he was looking, but he never found gold, to my knowledge. But, but he was sure looking for it. Now, <clears throat> I, I'm not saying that, that you just accidentally stumble across repentance. But I think when we consider the word bitterness that's found here, that this is the key. Now, most of you know the story about Jacob and Esau, how that Esau was the firstborn, and according to 
custom, he should have inherited the, the birthright. And the birthright simply means that he received a half of all of his father's wealth. Then the other was to be divided among the children. In this case, Esau would have received three-fourths of everything that his father had, and Jacob would receive a quarter of one-fourth of it. Because after the half was taken off, then the other half was divided among the two children. That's how it worked. He also was to be the priest of his household. That means that when people had problems and needed counsel and they needed a touch of God, they were to come to him because he was to represent God to that family and that family to God. Now, <clears throat> Esau went to his brother in a weak moment and sold that birthright and said, look, I, I don't care about those spiritual things. See, that was his attitude. Forget it. Well, he sold that birthright. After he sold the birthright, he got to thinking about it and decided that he had done the wrong thing. And, of course, his mother, knowing uh, Jacob and Esau's mother, knowing that, that Jacob was a hunter, uh, knowing that he was had the ability to, to kill his brother, But see, the problem of this is that Esau, in his heart, really never forgave Jacob. He said he had, but he didn't. Now, I said all that to say this. What the Bible's talking about in the book of Proverbs, if there is a time which you can call on God, God. God will hear every man's prayer when he is sincere. But you have to understand one thing, that sin has the ability to destroy the will of man. And what you can do, you can understand that you're wrong. And you can know you're wrong. And you know that you're reaping the consequences of wrongdoing. And basically you're reaping what you sowed. But there is a point in which the will is so captured, unless there is the restoration and the healing of the will, where the want to is restored. It doesn't make any difference how much you pray. God will not hear you because he hears only the prayer of a man who is in submission to him. I hope I'm making sense in this. Let me just, let me point out something. And, and, and this is a very tragic story. I, 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 I hesitate somewhat to point it out, but I, I think it will leave an impact on, on you when you hear this. Someone came to me and said, uh, I know a lady that needs some counsel. And uh, it was, uh, I was at a church service, and, and she was in the, in the car, and her husband was in the, in, in, in the car, and, and she, her husband had sent someone in and asked if I'd come out. So I, I went out, and, and I told, uh, I said, I told, they told me what the situation was, and this lady poured her heart out. She said, uh, my father... I'd love my father dearly. And, and she said, I walked in his office and, and I saw a, a, a woman sitting in his lap. And it was not her mother. And she said, I, I just, I'm having a hard time coping with it. And then she said, uh, my husband and I went out of town and we went into a restaurant and we had the kids with us and we were eating, and the restaurant had a smoking and a, a non-smoking area, and we were in the non-smoking area, and you couldn't see over in the smoking area. One of the kids wanted to use the restroom, so the child got up and he had to go through the smoking area. The child came back and says, Papa's over there. So the lady got up and went around there. Here, this her was her dad, and, and her, her dad was with another woman. Not the same woman, she said that I saw him with in the office. And she was weeping and crying. And uh, I detected she was bitter about this. I said, now let me tell you something that is it, very, very essential. And, and you may find it hard to forgive your dad, but you're going to have to forgive your dad. I mean, your dad can go ahead and do this, but don't let it be your problem. See, Jesus said, if you forgive men not their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you your trespasses. 
And I told this lady, I said, now, this is so important. I, I feel a directive from the Holy Ghost to tell you this. That as much as you hate this sin, if you do not find the ability to forgive your dad of this and let this be your dad's problem, there's going to be a root of bitterness that grows up within you. And if you can't forgive this man, then God doesn't forgive you of your sins. That's how logical God is. Now, could you see yourself doing something like your dad's doing? She says, never over my dead body, she said. I hate what he is. I said, but you could do that. Well, her husband called me sometime later and told me, said, I appreciate the counsel, but you need to talk with her again. On another occasion, I talked with her. They moved to another part of the country, and they were working there. And then I, I received word that this lady had left her husband. You know what she had done? She had found a young teenager working on a construction job. And she just got in the truck with him and left and went and spent a few nights with him. It ended up to the breaking up of her family. She later on said, I, I don't know how that ever happened to me. The very thing that I opposed and fought the most, I became victimized by you see, there is a point in which you call on God and you can be so wrapped up in self and the will can be so uh, captured that you can't manifest the want to. You may say, well, pastor, if that ever happens to me, what is the answer? I think, I think the answer is found in the book of Proverbs. Uh, if you turn to chapter 2, the Bible says, My son, if thou wilt receive my words and hide my commandments with thee, so that thou incline thine ear unto wisdom and apply thine heart to understanding, yea, if thou criest after knowledge and liftest up, liftest up thy voice for understanding, if thou seeketh her as silver and searchest for her as for hid treasure. What the Bible is saying is that that you catch yourself in a situation in which you know that 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 you are that you are being victimized and the want to has left you and and when people talk about church and they talk about worship and they talk about God and yet you understand that your 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 life is not where it ought to be that you're not happy but the problem is you you just don't have the want to to be saved the bible says you know what you need to do you need to go on a search for God. And, and when you're searching, make sure that you search after wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is the ability to use knowledge. It doesn't make any difference what you know if you don't possess the ability to do it. You may understand that God is all-powerful, but if you don't have the, the wisdom to search for Him. Now notice what verse 5 says. Then shall thou understand the fear of the Lord. And find the knowledge of God. The Bible says if there's a lack of fear in your life for God, you need to start searching for God's Word like a man would search for silver or for a hidden treasure. You've lost your want to. That's what you've got to do. And you know, the, the tragedy of poor Esau was that he died a bitter old man. Because he couldn't repent, because he could never get over his feelings that he had for his brother. And you know, you, there are enough situations in life to make everybody bitter. We become bitter over all kinds of situations. But bitterness, basically, is the fruit of an unforgiving spirit. And it's acquired through a choice. A choice that you make. A choice that you make. Intangible riches. It's always something I can see with my eyes. Something I lay my hand on. But we need to be more concerned about what we are inwardly. Our integrity. Our character. 
<clears throat> Make sure, too, that the Bible brings this out, and I, I will not have time to, to go into this, but in the book of Proverbs, the Bible talks about people who gain knowledge. Bible knowledge without prayer makes you a scholar. And that's the end of it. And there are a lot of Bible scholars. But Bible knowledge seasoned with prayer or relationship with God will make you a complete person. Make you a complete person. I don't know, I feel the touch of the Holy Ghost in this place today. I believe God's talking to somebody's heart. Praise God. I'd like you to stand with me if you would. In my simple presentation of this great truth, I trust that you've given a lot of consideration. Intangible riches. What are you living for? Where are you staking your claim? What are you digging for? What is meaningful in life to you? Remember, if you continue to plant seeds to the flesh, you will reap corruption. But if you will plant seeds of the Spirit, you'll reap everlasting life. We're going to give you an opportunity to come and seek the Lord. Right here in front of the pulpit, we don't put the pews up or the chairs up close to the pulpit because we like to come around and pray. This whole area here is dedicated to prayer. If you're, you feel deficient in your relationship with God, you need to just step out and come down here and stand. I'll assure you we have Christian workers who would be glad to step out with you and come and pray with you. Only what you do in life for God will really make you rich. The intangible things, things that you can't put on a scale and weigh, things you can't stretch out a ruler and measure, things you can't pour in buckets, measure the volume of it. But it's there. And you know what? It's just as real as this pulpit is. It's just as real as this building is. It's real. Step out right now. Come on. Come on right now, would you? <clears throat> oh, hallelujah. God bless these who are coming. Come on right now. Turn and invite someone to come and pray with you. Praise God. Come on, our praise singers will be singing here in a moment. If there's a good move of the Holy Ghost, come on right now and give your heart to God, would you? Oh, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Yes, Lord. Come on right now. Oh, Jesus is in this place. <clears throat> Can you come and give your heart to him? Can you give your life to him? Come on, don't hesitate. We want our praise singers to begin to sing at this time. But the altar's still open. There's still time for you to come.
Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Still time for you to come. God definitely wants to touch you today and fill you with the Holy Ghost. 